Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Project Purple podcast. I'm Dino Varelli, founder and CEO of Project Purple, and I'm back in the studio again today with some normalcy, getting back to some normalcy, I should say. We're, we're recording this during the COVID-19 pandemic, so things have been a little bit not normal for us. Uh, we haven't been in the studio as much just because of our state here in Connecticut, Connecticut being at a stay-at-home work scenario, but I'm, I'm snuck back into the office today to, to record this special episode. And on the phone with us all the way from Lancaster, California, is Marsha Rodriguez. Marsha, how are you? Great, Dino. How are you doing? I'm doing fantastic. Thank you for joining us. Full disclosure for our audience listening at home, you had reached out to me from one of the emails, I think that you're on our you're on our distribution list to follow us, but you had reached out to me, unbeknownst to me, that I knew that you were, uh, you know, pancreatic cancer survivor fighter, and uh, had shared a little bit of your story, and I was like, oh, this would be great to get you on the podcast. So that's how we connected. Sometimes <laughs> I always share with our audience how people get to us, and I think that's just so amazing you know, that we have so many people on this journey with pancreatic cancer, but we're all connected in, in these wild and crazy ways. And it, it's just, I think, so impactful. Hopefully it's impactful to me and hopefully it is for the people listening at home, just so that we're not alone. You're not alone fighting this. And, and there are so many people out there together in this fight with you. So thank you for uh, for replying back. And, and it's pretty wild to oh, kind of think about that. Yeah, my pleasure. My pleasure. So as we always do with all our guests, Marsha, this is your opportunity to share a little bit of your background and, and, you know, with our audience. And as I always tell our guest members, you can go as far back, you can stay <laughs> as high level, and then we will go from there. So with that, the microphone is yours. All right. Super. Well, um, gosh. I was diagnosed in 2006 with our pancreatic cancer, specifically neuroendocrine cancer in, uh, in my pancreas. And prior to that, I had been misdiagnosed for about seven years. Wow. With everything from IBS to uh, Crohn's disease uh, to diverticulitis to finally being put on psych meds and being told I was just kind of high strung and was making myself sick. And uh, so it was. It it was quite a um, quite a journey uh, to finally get a diagnosis, and then and then just to you know feel like the world just in the blink of an eye fell out from under you. <laughs> but I have survived uh, how thirteen years now? It'll be fourteen years in November. Wow! And uh, it's uh, it's not easy, but I have it a lot easier than than a lot of people. So I have a lot to be grateful for. And uh, finding my my way along the uh, along the years, and trying to find a way to uh, to deal with it, and still have a productive life has been uh, kind of my uh, my new mission in life, I guess you'd say. That's amazing. Fourteen years. Yeah. Wow. So I, I want to back up a little bit here. So you said you know you were originally diagnosed in two thousand six. But you mm -hmm. had seven years of misdiagnosis. So if we go back, and, and I always preface this when I when I ask this question similarly to other guests, 
you know, hindsight's always twenty twenty, right? Like we can always look back and kind of notice signs or notice things that were happening that we don't didn't know at the time, but now we do know because it's the future. So taking that into consideration, what was kind of the first symptom that you realized like, hey, something was off? Well, I I have a family history of kind of having uh, stomach trouble. And, uh, and so uh, my grandmother, my, my father, and, and two of my siblings, you know, it was always kind of the family joke. Anytime you're under stress, you know, you're uh, running to the bathroom and, and getting sick. And, and it, it, with that kind of a history growing up as a kid, I never really paid too much attention to it. But I started getting more and more symptoms of acid reflux and um, almost what felt like the flu. I mean, all hmm. of a sudden, just a, a light switch would flip and I would be, you know, puking my guts out and sick as a dog and running to the bathroom. And after anywhere from 24 to 48 hours, it was like the light switch turned back off and it was gone. Wow. And it was, uh, you know, I, I was diagnosed as having the flu several times. I was a, I'm, I'm a retired tennis pro, worked a lot with children uh, at the time. And it was, uh, you know, at first it was explained to me, well, you know, when you work around kids, you just you always pick up something. Yeah. But I mean, you know, after you've been diagnosed with flu symptoms for the five, fifth and sixth and seventh time, you start thinking mm, something else has got to has got to be happening and you know i was put on nexium and and uh, all kinds of medications for acid reflux and mm -hmm. but still would continue to have the problem so i would you know i went to pretty much every gi doctor in the dallas fort worth area we lived in texas at the time and uh, it was it was just it was a nightmare no one no one ever could uh, could come up with the diagnosis of uh, of what was happening and of course everybody you know has to run their own tests so i can't tell you how many colonoscopies and endoscopies and and labs and and all that kind of stuff i had from every every specialist that i saw but uh, none of the none of the diagnoses stuck nothing nothing that they you know would prescribe or or uh, tell me to try had any had any long-term effect on my condition and I gradually just uh, started to deteriorate to the point where I was so dehydrated. I ended up in intensive care twice hmm. um, prior to being diagnosed. Uh, and, and at that point, I, I, uh, I kind of just told myself, you know, uh, I'm not crazy. I'm not making myself sick. You can't mentally put yourself in ICU. And, uh, and so I, uh, I found a, a specialist at uh, UT Southwestern. And uh, within a few lab tests and a couple of office visits, he said, you know, you're not crazy. You, you know, you we need to do surgery and you probably have cancer. That's so crazy. And that probably was the best thing that happened to me. So, but I, I, backing up just a bit here. So you were doing diagnostic testing. Mm-hmm. And there was nothing showing up on any of the, no, none of the, the tests ever showed anything about a mass or anything. No, That's no. And so my primary tumor crazy. is still un, unknown. They found it in my lymph nodes all around my pancreas. Um, but I'm all, I'm still listed as primary unknown because I can't find it. It's there. 
And the minute I go off of my medication, you know, everything starts back up to flare all up over again. again. So it's, it's, uh, it's controlled, but it's not gone. It's, uh, it's very much a part of my everyday life. So I've got another thing that just came up. Um, that we're we're talking through this here because you said you had this family history and I, I've got air quotes here. If I had a video vlog, people would see me doing the air quotes here in the studio. When you say family history of stomach issues, that's like a generalized statement because every time you know nerves or whatever, as you said, you know you'd be running to the bathroom or have stomach issues. Mm -hmm. But is there a family history when, when I think we look at family history, we think of like genetics or cancer. So was this something that was also in line with the family that like there was grandparents and cousins and aunts and uncles who experienced these same stomach issues, but also possibly had neuroendocrine cancer or any type of cancer? Um, at the time, no, it was uh, near my my dad retired at a young age because he was basically would get to the point where he was incontinent and he couldn't, he couldn't huh. travel and, uh, you know, and work. And so he retired at a very early age, but there was, there was never any, um, never any kind of, you know, Jesus might be genetic. And now that I've educated myself well, yeah. over the years, I'm, I'm waiting to get uh, men one testing, uh, genetic testing done. Because I just feel that there's probably a real strong uh, correlation between the family history and uh, possibly having having men one. So that's kind of uh, my next journey is to try to get genetic testing approved. But uh, you know, back then there there really wasn't any. No, I had never heard of pancreatic cancer, and I didn't. It was never even anything that was even on our radar at all. Yeah. And I think that's the frustrating thing. I mean, clearly again, hindsight being 2020, but if you look back and I asked that question because, you know, I, I, there's so many families now and, and where this has evolved to and where I'm jumping to is this genetic piece. Right. And now we can look <laughs> back again, hindsight being 2020 and say, oh, well, grandma Sue, you know, she died of breast cancer and we know breast cancer is linked to pancreatic cancer. And then you see, you know, lineage where you have these various cancers that, you know, even 10 years ago, no one was thinking about this, even five years ago, quite honestly, you know, I don't mm -hmm. think there was that there was work being done, but not at the mass that it's being done now, where now, you know, for pancreatic cancer patients and for those listening at home, if there's a family member that's battling right now, genetic testing has to be probably the first or second conversation that I think yeah. any clinical oncologist should be having with families because it is so important. It's so critical. There's a treatment protocol that does really well, um, you know, with these pancreatic cancer fighters, um, you know, mm -hmm. if they have a specific germline mutation. So it is critical, you know, in that to have those conversations and, you know, looking back, I guess, you know, again, hindsight being 2020 and we can always kind of you know, put ourselves in that situation previously today because of what we know, but it's so fascinating that, you know, how quickly this conversation of genetics has evolved and become for the benefit of the patient, quite frankly. Oh, and it's fantastic. I mean, like your group, Project Purple, all the other resources that are available online, you know, 13 years ago, um, all that you basically you know, could Google and uh, and see on the internet was uh, the survival rate and if you have pancreatic cancer, 
time to get your life in order and uh, and uh, say goodbye. Yeah. And and you really had to do a lot of digging and a lot of researching even to get, you know, treatment options and, and information and even find uh, specialists. And, and now there's so much information. I, you know, people contact me all the time that are newly diagnosed and, and, you know, oh, my God, what do I do? Am I going to die? And all I can say is, I mean, you know, who knows when it's your time to go, but there's, you certainly have a lot more tools in your toolbox now in terms of being an advocate for yourself and educating yourself and treatment options and, and things like that than, than you did 13 years ago. Definitely. Oh, without a doubt, without a doubt, which I think, you know, for the audience listening at home and for the families, you know, I've said this time and time again recently here that, um, you know, as devastating as the news of being diagnosed with pancreatic cancer is today, there's still so much more that's going on today than, you know, than five years ago. So that's the promising hope, right? And and that's where we, we've got to kind of lean on the science and the doctors and the oncologists. There's, there's a lot more work to be done. Don't get me wrong. Uh, people do have a, a serious challenge ahead of them, but there is so much being done, which is so optimistic and so positive in the space right now. Going back to your journey here. So you have mm-hmm. these seven years of misdiagnosis. And then what was, I, I, I hate to use this term, but the light bulb that went off for whatever clinician to realize that you had this neuroendocrine, you know, pancreatic cancer. Um, yeah, I, you know, it's funny because I don't really think that he knows. We, <laughs> we both have kind of, it was one of those things where I'm surfing on the internet from the hospital you know, with IVs in me because I'm so dehydrated thinking, okay, I've got to find somebody somewhere. And I looked up UT Southwestern's uh, faculty site and just kind of out of the blue for no, I mean, the the physician that I saw was actually in the uh, liver and digestive disease clinic. And I clicked on his resume and and kind of was looking at at, uh, his education. And I just felt like this guy may, this guy may, and, and he wasn't a specialist in pancreatic cancer. There wasn't any, it was just kind of one of those meant to be type things. And I thought, well, you know, hell, I've, I've talked to everybody in the Dallas Fort Worth area. I might as well give this guy a shot. And so I went in and he was one of the most empathetic, uh, listening doctors I, um, I have ever encountered in, in those seven years. Most of them kind of give you a look like, well, you know, if you're that sick, you should be skin and bones. And if you're not skin and bones, you're probably making this up. And, uh, and, and he, you know, he listened. And, and to this day, he, we, every time we, uh, we meet, he, re, he recounts the story of our first um, office visit and, uh, and how he, he never would have guessed, you know, my diagnosis, but he, he was attentive enough to listen to what I was saying and not just kind of going for keywords and, and, uh, you know, going off of typical textbook knowledge and, um, and just ran, you know, ran gastrin tests and chromogranin A tests and which had never been, I'd never had before. And the minute those numbers came back off the charts, he was like, okay, <laughs> we know, we know where to go from here. That's fascinating. I mean, it's awesome. It's awesome to hear. And I, I always, you know, there, there's some doctors out there and, and I mean, there, there, there's some really, really great doctors and, and just sometimes there's, 
I don't know, the stars align or, or maybe something happens and you find <laughs> that right person. Uh, and I don't mean that kiddingly, you know, stars aligning, but, you know, I've heard yeah. so many stories of just, it's the right place, the right time and, and magic happens. And that's truly what, yeah. what happens. Yeah. So you get yeah. this, you finally get this diagnosis in 2006. Mm-hmm. And then what becomes your treatment? Like what, what does that look like? What's the protocol? What are the decisions that are made? Because I would imagine you go from, and and this is a question, like mentally, how does that, you know, for you, I mean, you, you've been told like, Hey, this is IBS. You got acid reflux, you know, it's, you know, it's the flu. You're spending too much time with kids. And then you realize probably whole, you know, you get the news of, Holy cow, I've got pancreatic cancer. So what mentally, what was that like for you, first of all? And then let's talk about the treatment protocol after. Sure. Um, you know, initially I was in shock, as I think probably anyone would be. Um, and and I, I really, I'm, I'm the type of person that I'm, I like to be my own advocate. I like to research things, whether it's, whether it's medical or just learning how to, you know, use my computer or, or whatever. And, uh, and I just, it just really threw me for a loop because it, the only information at that time really was that it was a death sentence and, and that's it. And so it, it really took me a while to get my, my mind wrapped around the fact that, okay, this is my new normal. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my option is to, you know, fight like hell or give up or, or land somewhere in between. But I, I needed to, you know, kind of work this out in my head. And I think everybody has that, has that moment where you kind of decide, you know, are you going to run or are you just going to, going to fight like hell? (laughs) And, uh, and, uh, I decided that, I mean, you know, I had, I have three children and two of them were still teenagers and I just decided, well, I'm just not going to give up whatever I need to do uh, with what we'll, what we'll do. And I'll just take it one day at a time. And, um, you know, at the time it was weird because it was almost like a total change in perception. It's like uh, when you, and I don't know your personal history, Dino, but it's like when you're diagnosed with cancer, you, you all of a sudden become a member of a club that you really never wanted to be in. (laughs) Yeah. But but you relate to other cancer patients in a way that that you never would have related to to people before mm-hmm. and um and i found myself having you know deeper friendships and deeper conversations with people that i hardly knew but all of a sudden we're in the same club and and uh, and we speak the same language you know if you will and uh, and so it was kind of it, it 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 made the it made the whole process a little bit easier just knowing that I wasn't alone and that there was a whole subgroup of people out there that up until that day I would have never even known existed but now I felt like I belonged to uh, to a group and uh, and it uh, it kind of helped me make the transition of of uh, what I wanted to to do you know, with my life and, and how I wanted to proceed. And, um, and it's, you know, so far so good. Um, in terms of my actual treatment, I had, uh, I was scheduled for a Whipple 
And um, when the surgeon went in, they could not find the primary tumor. I had my both sides of my pancreas had lit up, but they could not find a mass. Wow. And so they decided, well, let's not do the Whipple because, I mean, you know, we don't really know what we're taking out. So they took out all the tissue around my pancreas and that was all uh, malignant and showed me back up and, uh, and said, we're, we're just going to have to keep testing and see, you know, when it starts to really grow and, and be able to go back in and, and operate again. And uh, at the time, the only scans that they had were the old-fashioned creatide scans. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was fortunate enough, one of my one of my nephews is a doctor, and so he he kind of hit the medical journals and looked up clinical trials and tried to see you know who the experts were uh, in the world that were that were studying uh, pancreatic cancer, and I ended up contacting a doctor in London, Martin Kaplan, who at the time, what, 14 years ago, was doing experimental data tape scans, which is now the gold standard in, uh, in, in scans, but at the time wasn't approved in the United States by the FDA. And so my husband and I, you know, I, I, wanted, I wanted it out. I didn't, I didn't want to, let's wait and see where it goes and Let's wait until it, you know, metastasizes and then we'll be able to go in and do something. I wanted, I wanted to find it and I wanted it out. And so we flew to London and I had that daughter cage scan in, uh, in London and my head and the tail of my pancreas both lit up, but there wasn't a measurable mass. Hmm. And so came back to the States, totally frustrated because I, I didn't qualify for any kind of clinical trials. Because they, they measure things, you know, you have a seven centimeter mass and after chemo or after this trial, it went down to five centimeters or two centimeters or whatever, but not having anything measurable, um, I, I didn't qualify for, to try anything. So it was just basically, well, this is going to be living and growing inside you until it overtakes you and, and then we'll do something. And that, that that really kind of messed with my head there for a while. Um, but, you know, over time I've, I've gotten used to it. And, uh, and I know that as long as I continue with my, my treatment plan that, uh, you know, things stay, things stay stable. And I guess that's the best that I can hope for. So after this visit to the UK, you come back. And so were you, this was post the Whipple. So how, when did you, well, you said you went in for a Whipple, but they didn't really do the full Whipple because they couldn't see anything right. with their eyes, but everything lit up on the scan at that time. Right. Yeah. Like, so, mm-hmm. it, and that's one thing I, I, I know for our audience listening at home, maybe they don't understand. And this is no offense to anyone who doesn't get this on, uh, on the podcast listening, a lot of times what happens is, and this goes to the reverse as well, where a patient will do a scan, the scan looks clean, the tumors, you know, isolated in the pancreas. And then when they go to open up the patient, get to where the pancreas is, they realize that they see METs in the liver or on the, 
the small intestine. And then they decide at that point in time, just not to do surgery, um, because right. it's just too much of a, of a risk. But this case was the opposite where they see the tumor on the scan and then they go to open you up and then they realize, wow, there's no tumor on the pancreas. That's so fascinating. Yeah. 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 I mean, they did, I think 20, over 20 biopsy spots on my pancreas said that it was covered with spots, but that the, the sites that they biopsied did not come back malignant. Wow. And they were just totally baffled. But he said, you know, I, I want to err on the side of caution. Um, you know, we don't want to do a whipple yeah. and, and then have to come in and still do something else. So they just kind of closed me up and said, okay, we're just going to, we're just going to wait and see. So you go and, to, uh, you go to sleep though, Marsha thinking, okay, we got this. We're going to, you're going to wake up and you're going to be cancer free, cancer's removed. You wake up and then, you know, mentally what, you know, I'm sure that's not an easy conversation to have with the physician. No, no, um, not at all. But, uh, uh I guess I would have rather, and I guess I preferred them being more cautious than to just go in there and, you know, start taking everything out that they, they felt like could be, uh, could be a primary source. Um, and, and at the time I really didn't have a really good grasp on, on the, on the, on the cancer, on the varying types of, of cancer. Yeah. Uh, this wasn't a denocarcinoma, so it wasn't the fast, fast growing, uh, you know, fast moving. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It being neuroendocrine, uh, you know, it was, it was slower growing and, and, and harder to find. And so I just had to accept the fact that it was going to take a while. And, uh, I didn't, never thought it would take this long, but, uh, but, you know, I've been able to, to have a lot more years than a, a lot of people have had. And so I'm always mindful to, uh, to be grateful for every day because there are a lot of people uh, in my situation that don't have that luxury. Well, that's pretty powerful and selfless to say, but I, I, you know, you're in the fight for your family, as you said, for your kids and, and, you know, your family, that's just still got to be gut wrenching, you know, when that happens. Uh, I just can't even fathom. Uh, But it's, Oh, Oh yeah, definitely. Definitely. I mean, you know, it, it, it changes your life and there's not, a, a, there isn't a day that goes by that you don't think about it. And up until that diagnosis, there wasn't a day that went by that I did think about it. <laughs> so, you know, your mindset just completely, completely changes. Um, but it, it was interesting because I had a lot of kind of personal epiphanies along the way. And uh, we had moved out to the country because one of the physicians had insisted that my job was stressing me out and I needed to just kind of retire and, and, and go live in the country and take it easy. And so we did that. And, uh, and I, I was overwhelmed by the kindness of the community that we moved into with uh, my husband and my teenage sons. And, uh, and it just kind of really, uh, it changed my perception and uh, you know, people that I, I didn't even know we're coming to our house, bringing us, you know, not, not just here's a pie, you know, but whole meals. And I'm talking like a whole Turkey, a whole ham, uh, you know, enough food to, to feed an army, even with my two growing boys <laughs> and the, the selflessness of the people in, in that community, just, 
it, it was incredible. And uh, so I decided at that point that, you know, I would pay it forward and I would help all the other people in my community that, that needed help. And, uh, and so I stopped focusing on myself and started focusing on other people and, and helping people who were newly diagnosed with breast cancer or, you know, brain cancers and things like that. And, uh, you know, kind of lending a hand and an ear and a, and a shoulder and, and some moral support to the extent that I could, um, to help other people. And I realized that the more that I did that and stopped focusing on my own health issues and my own mental battle to survive, um, I felt better. It's powerful. And, uh, that was kind of, it was to me, it's, it's, you know, I tell people having pancreatic cancer, my diagnosis was probably one of the best things that could have ever happened to me because I started living life with a completely different perspective that I had never, had never had before. And, uh, and looking back, although it's, you know, obviously horribly difficult and hasn't been an easy road for my children or my family as well. Um, it, it really brought home and made me appreciate things, uh, that I had taken for granted before. Oof. Powerful stuff, Marsha. <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I, I think, um, you know, so I, again, taking notes here that, that selfless attitude though is really powerful because I think I've seen a lot of survivors and fighters talk about that, you know, and, and how that shifting of mental attitude. And I think, you know, what I think it partially is too, a little bit here, if we were to go out on and talk about this here for a second, Marsha, is just the energy that it takes you know, and I think the energy that it takes to be selfless is, is a lot less than the energy that it takes to kind of be in, involved in like what's going on wrong in your life. Cause that could be very intoxicating. It can be very paralyzing. Um, it could be very heavy, mm -hmm. but to be selfless and to do things for others for all intents and purposes is very easy and energy wise, it's very therapeutic and very positive. So it has that double effect, right? Like it, it, it takes your weight that you have dealing with this kind of puts it to the side. You still have this thing you're dealing with, but it, it kind of eliminates it and then puts the focus on anywhere, you know, elsewhere in a positive mm -hmm. way to help people. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's so fascinating and powerful what you just said and hopefully our audience at home because i just got it and i was just like wow that just the, the light bulb went off big time for me there so you go through this at some point you know you said you're still battling this so treatment wise where are you today like you're still going in for treatment you, i know you mentioned yeah. before when you get off treatment things kind of flare up that's not a good thing so what does treatment look like today um today is pretty much the same as it has been gosh for at least t at least 10 years um i take a, a somatoline intramuscular injection every 28 days and then I follow that up at the end of the 28 days with 10 days of additional uh, creatide acetate uh, injections. So 11 injections a month. 
um, just to be able to keep my gastrin levels low, keep my chromogranin levels low, and keep things stable. And any variation from that just totally upsets the apple cart, and I'm sick as a dog. So it works, and uh, so we uh, we go with it. And I have I have months that are a little bit more symptomatic, and and other months that are better. Um, so it's a, it's an ongoing struggle, but at least uh, the medications that I'm on uh, help, and uh, and are keeping my numbers low. And as long as my numbers are low, that's you know the best indicator that my tumor activity is low. And uh, and so that's that's what I do every year. I go in for scans. I'll be going back to Dallas uh, next month, and going through the whole thing again and uh, seeing if we can find anything measurable that uh, that they can go in and take out. And if not, I'll do it another year. At some point, you know, the, the medications have increased over the years because I get to a point where, you know, the, the lowest dose no longer holds me for the, a 30-day period. And, uh, and I start being symptomatic. And so I've had to increase the the doses over a year of the medications. Um, but, you know, as of knock on wood today, they still, they still are effective in, uh, in slowing the cancer growth. And so at this point, it's my, it's my best hope. And those injections. So this team, this strategy and the, and the injections you've been doing for 10 years, that was all from the folks there at uh, University uh, Southwest th- down there in Texas. Mm-hmm. So you've been yeah. going back and forth, consulting, uh, doing your, an- so you're doing annual scans with the guys in Texas. Yeah. As well. Yeah. Okay. I, I mean, I have, I have kind of a, I don't know if it's a psychological or allegiance to them or, <laughs> or whatever, but I figured, you know, I, I don't, we moved out here to California five years ago and It took me so long to find someone that that figured out what was wrong with me that I've had no interest in in uh, in 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 looking for a specialist uh, here in California. I told my husband I'll I'll drive back to Texas every year. Doesn't matter. At least I I feel confident that the team I've got is on top of things and and uh, and I have every confidence in the world in them. And so you know that to me that's important as well. Yeah. And I think you just said something, you know, for audience listening at home and, and we've had guests before on the podcast that have traveled. And when you find good doctors, you got to feel comfortable, you know, you're, you're fighting for your life. And if there's a little bit of distance in between, go do it. Find People will find a way, right? You, plane, trains, oh, yeah. automobiles, uh, you'll, you'll get there. And, and, you know, I think, and look, what COVID has taught us all you know, in the medical community that telehealth actually works. Not the mm-hmm. same as being there live, but I, I hope this is like the one many positive things that will come out of this and hopefully some other things, you know, with regards to, you know, the medical field and, and other ways that we are communicating. But the telehealth capabilities now are just really, really, uh, you know, enhancing. And this is this is something that I hope that we will see you know, for our community that potentially, you know, for people that, whether it's a distance thing, the other thing I think that 
We don't necessarily deal with that here in the Northeast where we're located, but, you know, just people that are in, you know, areas of the country where they don't have access. I mean, you might, you know, your, your example, you know, it takes you a couple hours to get to LA, you know, you could maybe telehealth someone, you know, on the, on the phone or computer, you know, a lot quicker than maybe hopping in the car and getting there. I hope that becomes something that, you know, I think that, you know, will be a benefit of this whole COVID thing. Cause I know that telehealth has just exploded just because they don't want anyone in the centers, but you know, getting back to your point, you know, there's ways I think for the audience listening at home, if, you know, they feel comfortable talking to someone in another part of the country, now that we figured that out, they should be able to do that. Oh yeah. Yeah. And you know, I, with the uh, online, my chart type things now, oh, I yeah. get copies of all my results. I can send questions and I get a response back and, and, you know, they're, I mean, I'm affiliated with one of the groups here in LA with our pancreatic cancer, well, actually several of them. And I know there are, there are quite a few excellent specialists out here, but I just don't have the personal relationship with them that I do with my team in Dallas. And it just, it, it means the world to me because I know if I have a question, I can fire off an email and I will get a reply that day. And, you know, if I, if I feel like I'm, uh, I, I need, you know, other medication or whatever, I, I don't, I don't have a problem getting a response or waiting a week for someone to, you know, get back to me and things like that. And and that's worth a lot. I mean, to me, it is, uh, especially with what I have went through, you know, prior to my diagnosis. And, uh, and so uh, I'm a firm believer in, in finding a, a team that you're comfortable with and, uh, and that, you know, you can communicate with and, and you feel you have confidence in because so much of this, has to do with your mental outlook. I've I've gone to uh, a lot of different uh, associations, Alzheimer's and uh, uh, multiple sclerosis uh, fundraisers and stuff since I've been in California, and I've I've listened to some of their uh, their little uh, uh, group presentations where they bring in the you know the best and the brightest minds from all over the country, and they talk about how do you how do you deal with this or how do you deal with uh, with this disease and that disease. And there's a common core that runs through so many of these chronic diseases that the, your mental attitude and, and, uh, and having something to live for and having, having a reason to live and a purpose uh, can, can make a night and day difference in your outcome. And they've actually done, you know, some studies. And, and that's what they're finding is that, you know, it's, it's, it's not just the physical component and, and beating the, the physical part of the disease, but it's also how, how, how you're made up mentally and, and how you're, how you're, uh, you're approaching the problem. And uh, so to me, it was just kind of confirmation as I sat back in the crowd and, and took notes of, well, okay, I guess I'm on the right track then. Um, because that's kind of the way I've, I have approached it is it's, you know, I don't, I don't want it to define me. I mean, obviously it, it affects every aspect of my life, but I don't want to be, I don't want to be known as that person that has pancreatic cancer. Uh, and so I don't let it define me. And I think to some extent um, that's been responsible for, for my uh, longevity. Powerful. I got a question for you that just popped up. Sure. So you talk about this mental outlook. Mm -hmm. 
hindsight being 2020, do you think this comes from like early on growing up, a parent, grandparent? You mentioned, you know, you worked with little kids, you were in Texas, then you guys moved, you have three kids. So was this something that you think if you look back, like something that you inherently had throughout your life? And then, you know, you mentioned this doesn't, you know, pancreatic cancer doesn't define you. It's just what you're dealing with right now and the way you handle mm-hmm. that versus like just realizing like, hey, this is a new way of thinking because I'm dealing with pancreatic cancer. Yeah, I, I think I evolved. I don't I, I don't really think that it's something that I've had as a child and, and growing up. I think it's something that I kind of evolved, um, just internalizing and, and dealing with um, the disease within myself. I mean, you know, I started journaling almost immediately after I got back from the hospital because I just had so much on my mind that I needed to kind of you know, make sense of. And, um, and, and so it, it just kind of, it, it's kind of been a journey um, of self-discovery almost and, and kind of realizing what's really important and what I thought was important in my life prior to 2006 isn't even on the radar <laughs> uh, now. Yeah. And, uh, and that's okay. You know, but had I continued my, uh, my merry life, I, I, I would have never, you know, discovered some of the, uh, the strengths and the, uh, and the tenacity that I've developed just because, you know, I, I wanted to see my kids graduate from high school and I wanted to see them graduate from college. And now I've seen both of my sons get married and one son have a baby. And, um, it's, it's just been, you know, through grit and determination that I've decided it's just not going to, it's not going to get to me. I'm, it's going to have to, you know, drag me down and stick my nose in the dirt before I'm going <laughs> to say, okay, I'm done. I got to, I wanted to, and I know when we were trading emails, you mentioned some stuff that you're doing and I wanted to kind of shift gears and go there for a second here the outcome of all this, you decided you kind of wanted to help and bring awareness, not only for the disease, but some other stuff that you're doing online that I just wanted to talk about right now. You, you started a, a, I believe it's a, a, a nonprofit as well, um, or an organization to kind of put words out there and, and to help those uh, in need. So let's talk about that here for a second. Okay. Well, it's not a nonprofit. I actually started a business and it, it, it started out just purely selfish motives. We, you know, we lived out in the country. The nearest hospital was probably 30, 45 minutes away. My kids were, you know, in athletics and, and not home. And uh, my husband traveled. And, you know, once you're a cancer patient, you got a list of prescriptions and, and stuff that's, you know, ridiculous. And, and so, I, I, I just kind of had a, a concern that if I was ever in an accident on, you know, one of the country roads out there, that I, I, I would be dead in the emergency room before anybody ever even figured out, you know, what medications I was on, what my, you know, medical history was, etc. And so uh, I developed a, a credit card type of a USB that I call 911 USB and I keep it in my wallet. And it's got, you know, folders of my medical history 
my current scans, my current labs, my medication lists, so that if I'm ever, you know, in a situation where I'm unconscious, at least I have a fighting chance in the emergency room of someone knowing, you know, oh, geez, she's diabetic. She has pancreatic cancer. She's on, you know, 15 different medications. Um, and so I developed it for myself. And as I started using it and just kind of talking to, to friends, I realized that, you know, there's a lot of people that have chronic type illnesses that have the same issue. And, you know, I, I know from myself going down to Dallas, I would have my notebook binder with me, you know, that I'm carrying uh, with all of my test results and stuff from London and stuff from Dallas and all my different prescription lists and things like that. And, and uh, it was so much easier. And, and then as I started to travel with my husband and come out to California and, and go all over, you know, he used to joke that we'd have to have a whole suitcase just full of all my medical records and all the different, you know, Ziploc bags of prescription pills and all that, which we still had to take, but at least I had a listing. And so um, I decided that what I wanted to do with it is I just wanted to develop it and market it. And then I wanted to use the profits to help other people. And so, um, so I've been doing that for probably the last four years, uh, trying to, you know, get it going just off of my retirement salary and little bits at a time. And uh, to be honest, I give most of the product away just to be able to help other people that are in my situation. Um, because the, the peace of mind that you have of, you know, of not having to worry uh, about, you know, I mean, my husband's a great guy, but if I was unconscious in the hospital and he had to recite the 15 medications or the, you know, the dosage of my chemotherapy and, and how often I take insulin and which insulin and it, he just wouldn't be able to do it. Um, and very few people can, I mean, you know, I have a hard time. So, uh, so that's what I do. I, I develop the product and I, you know, give discounts to PanCan members and any other group that wants to, you know, to work with me. Alzheimer's patients, I, I, even out here now, they're using it for people are buying it to do uh, home inventories and stuff so that if you have to evacuate because of a fire or a flood, you, you know, you've always got copies of your home inventory and important papers and 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 that kind of stuff right there in your wallet. And so uh so it's kind of it's something that I'm passionate about because I I ideally would like to see it become um commonplace and with every hospital. You know, when you go to the hospital and you get your medical records, you get a single use C D. And for a while I was carrying around a whole notebook of C D sleeves as well. Yeah. So that I, you know, had the latest scans because, you know, if you don't have your stuff with you when you go to the hospital, guess what? You're going to have another scan and you're going to have another set of blood tests, whether or not you need it. I mean, realistically or not, because they want to have, you know, the information at hand. They want to see the reports, et cetera. And so I just started taking it with me and uh, it really it uh, gave me some peace of mind. And it also saved on my medical bills because I wasn't having to have repeated scans and repeated blood tests because I could actually produce, you know, the lab reports and the scan reports off of my little USB in my wallet. Great idea. What's the website? If people want to learn more that are listening, that's sure. the best place it's, to uh, kind of find out more. Yeah. It's www.911usb.com. 
Net. Awesome. I, I think it's it's fascinating what happens in times of crisis, and you know, anyone battling any type of cancer, let alone pancreatic cancer. I mean, the the ideas and the things that come out are just so fascinating to me. I mean, I look at my example of, you know, starting a charity, not to give myself a selfish mm-hmm. plug, but you know what you're doing here, and you know when you're you're hearing you talk about that, I just remember like my own personal experience. Like my mom would have a binder with all my dad's paperwork. It was crazy. Like it was absolutely uh-huh. crazy. Like keeping track of all that stuff. It's absolutely insane. And um, it's such a smart idea. So kudos to you, Marsha, for thinking of that. And uh, hopefully our listeners, you know, take a look at that website and uh, great, great resource. I got two questions here for you left. Sure. Given what you've gone through and what you're still going through, let's say there's someone listening to the podcast and they just have been diagnosed what advice would you give them? Uh, I think to be your own advocate, to educate yourself uh, as much as possible, um, and to reach out to the organizations that are available now that have resources beyond anything that you could even comprehend at this point of the journey because you're still in shock. Um, there are so many resources like your own group um, and, and, and some of the other pancreatic cancer groups. There are Facebook groups of just uh, patients where, where you can, you know, be in a private setting and talk about some of the fears and, and, and questions that you have that you really don't really feel comfortable maybe discussing with anybody because you're like, am I crazy? Am I the only person that's, that's thinking about this stuff? Um, there's just so many resources out there that you really just need to avail yourself to, to everything and just soak up as much information as you can and just realize that, you know, it's, there, there are situations and there are diagnoses where, you know, it's, it's really bad and, and you may not be able to pull out, but so much can, can, can change your prognosis just by how you, how, you know, how you fight and, 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 and how you want to approach it. I have a friend who's stage four now and, and I cannot imagine any more complications that life could throw at her than, than, you know, what she's going through now. And even from her bed, she's sending emails and, and sending text messages and saying, I'm, I'm not going down now I'm on oxygen and I've got a blood clot. And, but by God, this is not going to, you know, this is not going to stop me. And she was at Christmas time, she was making Christmas cookies and mailing them out to, <laughs> to people in our group. I love that. I and love I thought, my that. God, you know, I mean, the woman can hardly walk and uh, she's on oxygen and she's making Christmas cookies and, and asking people, if you had one wish, if you could do something with $20, what would it be? And people are telling her, well, I'd get a Walmart gift card and I would give it to, you know, so-and-so or, or the lady that does my hair or whatever. And she's sending out gift cards to people. And I mean, you know, if anybody had the reason to just lay down in bed and say, this is it, I'm, it's got me, it would be her. And, and I take, I take a lot of motivation and inspiration from people like that. Uh, and, and they're out there. 
and they're willing to help uh, just like I am. And and you are, Dino. I mean, you know, there are a lot of people out there that um, that care about you being able to find your way and uh, and you being able to, you know, talk about things that maybe you don't feel comfortable talking to, you know, another family member about. Um, and, and it's just, it's incredible the community that is available now to support, you know, people that are newly diagnosed. So, you know, I'd say you're not alone. And, and anytime you need support, there's, there's, it's, a, it's incredible the people that are available and, and not just in the U.S., but all across the globe that, that are there to, you know, sit up with you in the middle of the night and send a text message or, or a message back and forth and say, Hey, you know, I know you feel like crap and, and, uh, but it's going to get better. And I think that's a wonderful thing that the humanity that I've discovered that I never really understood existed. And, um, and it really now has made me want to be even more a part of that community because it's it's just a it's a wonderful thing to see in the face of such adversity, uh, you know, people putting their own their own self aside and being willing to to help other people on this on this terrible journey. Well, it's what I I think I'll sum it up going back to what I said before. When you're selfless, it's it's so much easier. Yeah, you know, it's a little it's 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 hard to do. But I think you're, it's so much easier to do, you know, um, and it's powerful because I think, you know, uh, you know, I just know from experience that, um, there's a lot of really, really good people out there. I mean, this is a really bad time in our country and our world and the history of the world. Right. But mm -hmm. look at all the great things that are happening, all the selflessness that's happening with, you know, people making masks for our healthcare providers, people mm -hmm. providing meals, you know, and, and people just helping neighbors and, you know, buying groceries for the elderly because they're too afraid to go into the stores right now or they can't get into the stores, you know. So it's just a really powerful statement that, you know, you're not alone in this fight and there are a lot of people here that want to help. Oh, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, that's out of every tragedy comes comes a silver lining if you look for it. Every day I, I tell people every day. They may not be the best day, but if you look hard enough, there's something to be grateful for. Oh, without a doubt. Something. Without and, a doubt. And, you know, this, this uh, whole COVID-19 thing has just really, you know, brought it home because there's, there's so much human kindness going on. And I think uh, just like with, uh, with your journey with cancer, you know, you realize what's really important and the people that are really important and the things that aren't really all that important you can live without. But um, the people that step up and make a difference are, you know, it kind of, it warms your heart. And, uh, and that's, I, that's all that I have found in this pancreatic cancer community are, are people like that. And it's, it's, you know, it's great. I love it. I love hearing it. All right. Last question. And this is probably the hardest question. It's not uh, a loaded question and there's no right or wrong to this, Marsha. In your experience, how do you define pancreatic cancer what's your definition of it definition of it well gosh 
I think it's probably one of the most under-researched, underfunded, overly deadly uh, diseases that you could be diagnosed with. Um, it's something that uh, there's there's got to be there's got to be more ways to to diagnose it earlier. There's got to be more of a focus. Um, so many, are, I mean, it seems like it's becoming more prevalent, and I don't know whether it's just because doctors are becoming more familiar with the signs and the symptoms um, to where they're diagnosing it more. Um, but it's not it's not uh, as rare as it used to be. Yet the statistics in terms of survival have really not. I think they've judged they've nudged one uh, percent. I think. In, in my recent memory. And uh, so it's it's one of those things that it's got it's got to be a focus and it's got to be uh, something that that we as a community advocate for and, and help to to uh, to vanquish because it's just it's a crime that so many lives are impacted by it and and yet the survival rates are, are really not not measurably improving, like the days of breast cancer. And and now, you know, breast cancer is, is extremely survivable. Uh, but it's also not a death sentence, and I think people need to understand that as well. Uh, you know, all of us, I, I remember early on telling people, you know, they were like, oh, my God, you're going to die. And... People can say the cruelest things when you you know, when they find out that you have cancer or, oh, my dad had that. He's dead. And it's like, well, great. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. It. Thank you. <laughs> Michael Landon had that. Look, he's dead now. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Patrick Swayze. Yeah. Great. Great. But um, I lost my train of thought. But it's um, it's something that it's it. it uh, Everyone is everyone is going to die, uh, and I think that when you get diagnosed, it, it brings that on. Is that you realize that we're all dying. I just know what I'm going to die from. <laughs> but uh, you know, since my diagnosis, I've had friends, healthy friends, die of heart attacks. I've had people, friends, in car accidents. You know, none of us knows when we're going to go. The only difference in the in our diagnosis is that we pretty much know what we're going to die from, but you know, none of us gets out of this alive pancreatic cancer or not. And, uh, and so we just got to do the best we can with the time that we've got. Powerful. Last thing I, no more questions, but if someone is listening to this podcast and they'd love to connect with you, maybe talk to you about their story, maybe they're going through neuroendocrine pancreatic cancer right now or something mm -hmm. that just kind of spurred their interest that they'd love to reach out. What's the best place for them to connect with you? I know you mentioned the website, the nine 11, is, is it there or is there somewhere else, Marsha? Yeah. Yeah. My, uh, my email through the website is on there. It's admin at nine one one USB.net. Um, but, uh, I also have a Facebook page for the company nine one one USB. And, uh, and then I also have a, a Facebook, uh, personal page. And so you can message me 
and uh, and I think I've even got my phone number on the website uh, because I offer you know free technical support uh, because I I like I said I I didn't develop the product to make money I developed it to help other people and so you know if somebody needs help that's what I'm all about. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Marsha, thank you for being a guest on the Project Purple podcast. I've been taking notes here and there were two things, you know, your mental toughness, I have to say, you know, when I hear you talk, I could just see, hear it come out, you know, when you, you, you know, talk about not fighting alone and being your best advocate, you know, there's just so much positivity and toughness in that statement. And it's really something that I've seen and hopefully our listeners at home listening to this podcast see that as well. And something that you said that was so profound that I wrote down early on was that this was the best thing that happened to you, you know, and, and, and just really powerful for our audience to hear that. And, you know, sometimes we, we do need some of these things to kind of wake us up and, and put us back on track. And then sometimes they need to hear the story from someone who's going through that to maybe wake them up and put them back on track. So from all of mm-hmm. us here at Project Purple, thank you for being a guest. Thank you for allowing us to share your story. And as we say here at Project Purple, that's a wrap of another episode of the Project Purple podcast. If you like what you hear, please share us, follow us wherever you listen to podcasts on iTunes or SoundCloud. And until next time, be safe and thank you for listening. (laughs) 